Good morning. Let's turn, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm not sure what page that is in the Pew Bible. 1 Peter is toward the end of your Bibles. Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, before the book of Revelation. 1 Peter chapter 1. Give you a moment to find that. Then we're going to read verses 18 through 21, our text for this morning. A tremendous text. So let me read 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 18 through 21. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, speaking of the incarnation, It was made manifest in the last days for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, the God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. In verse 18, if you note verse 18 again, you see a very important term that we need to understand, the word ransomed. Note that word, you were ransomed. This is a term used throughout the Old Testament and the New. Sometimes you'll see it translated redeemed. There are three main, um, three main word groups in the Old Testament that are often translated redeemed or ransomed. There's also a specific word group in the New Testament. Lutrao is the, is the term. The first word. Uh, Greek, one of the first Greek words you learn in first-year Greek as a first-year Greek student is the word luo, which means to loose or to set free. Y'all just say that with me. Luo. There's your first Greek lesson, and you're ahead of all those who start, uh, start studying Greek. The word means to loose, all right? Well, the word uh, lutrao is a specific type of loosing. The word luo means, is used of a, a, an animal being loosed, an animal that's tied up being loosed or set free. It's used of loosening your clothing, loosening your armor. The word lutrao, that word group, nouns and verbs, refers to some specific type of loosing, the, um, the loosing that occurs, the, the freedom that occurs by the paying of a price. That's always the idea of the term. Freeing someone by the paying of a price. Our word ransomed fits that very well. In the New Testament, this term is used often to speak of God's work of freeing sinners from bondage, the bondage of sin, using the precious currency of the blood of Jesus Christ. Over and over, the New Testament speaks of of believers being ransomed, being uh, uh, redeemed through the precious currency of the blood, the death of Jesus Christ. Let me just read you a few texts. Mark chapter 10, verse 20, verse 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life 
as a ransom, there's our word, noun form, a ransom for many. Romans chapter 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. None of us have somehow skipped that. We're all sinners and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, there's our word, that is in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. 1 Timothy 2, 6, who, speaking of Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. It's interesting, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, Jesus is pictured as a high priest who brings payment for man's sins. He doesn't approach the Father with the blood of animals as Old Testament priests did. Instead, he approaches the Father with his own blood, as it were. Animals were not sacrificed. He is. And so Hebrews 9.12 reads this way, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. He's approaching the Father with his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Here we have Jesus, who is both priest and sacrifice. He is approaching the Father as priest, and he brings his own blood. He is the one sacrificed. And there's a text that Nate just wrote, Titus 2.14. Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us, note, from all lawlessness, from sin. Folks, the bottom line is that the natural man, all of us in our natural state, in our normal natural state, all of us are enslaved to sin and under the sentence of death. And man is unable to pay the price for his freedom. He has no means, he has no wherewithal to pay the price. But there is hope because the ransom price has been paid. Christ paid it. His death was no ordinary death. It was a sacrificial death. He died as God's final lamb. He, he, he's... Uh, as God's final required sacrifice for sin. His death was also a substitutionary death. On the cross, he bore the penalty of our sin. As he hung upon the cross, our sins were legally, the Bible says, legally transferred to him, reckoned to him. The word imputation, imputed to him. That's not a word we use very often. You call the bank up, or you get in line, and you want money transferred from one, one account to another, right? Hi, this is Scott Williquit. My account number, here it is. Would you please transfer 500 bucks from my savings to my checking? What happens then? Uh, you know, uh, what happens? You're in, the, you're in a bank, aren't you? So some person goes, here's what happens, right? Some person goes into a drawer, unlocks it, takes 500 bucks out of your drawer, physically the money, walks across the room, sticks it into another drawer, right? From savings to checking. That's what happens? No. No, no there's no physical movement of cash. How is money transferred? Legally. 
It's imputed. It's reckoned. On the computer, move 500 bucks from to here, from here to there. Right? It's a legal transaction. That's what we, what we mean by imputation. This is what happens, or what happened, on the cross. The sins of the whole human race were legally transferred, imputed, reckoned to Christ. On the cross, he bore the sins of the human race and then bore the punishment for those sins. Folks, all of this, all that I've just said, is bound up in the New Testament words, ransom, redeemed. When you see those terms in the text we just read and others, many others, that's what's going on here. The price paid, the price for our freedom, freedom from sin, its tyranny, and its results, eternal punishment. This is the glorious truth that Peter now is considering in verses 18 through 21. Here Peter answers three questions regarding redemption, regarding our redemption if we know Christ. Three questions. How was our redemption accomplished? Number one. From what were we bought back? Number two. And how long has our redemption been in the works or what is its history? The bottom line, folks, Jesus paid for your spiritual and eternal freedom. The price is paid. Now, whether you've taken advantage of that payment, I don't know. But the price has been paid. We're all sinners. You're a sinner. I know I am. And I know you are. You know you are. And there's no amount of money that will pay this debt. But the debt's been paid. So that you can be free from sin and its punishment. Let's pray. We'll look at this text this morning. Father, we thank you for your words here. These are not just the words of a, a human author. This is, these are not just Peter's words. Your spirit moved Peter, your word says, in such a way that everything written, all these words, are your words. What we have here is the very word of God. And Father, I pray for our time now, our short time together, that we'll gain some insight into our redemption, the price that was paid, and the freedom that is offered to every sinner because of Jesus' death on the cross. Help us each, Father, to reckon, to understand the truths here, and to consider our own situations. They ask the question, have I thought this through? Have I turned from my own sin and trusted Jesus so that I could take advantage of what Jesus did on the cross? So that I could be free from sin's control and free from sin's results, eternal punishment. Bless our time now, Father. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Peter makes three points this morning in these few verses. First of all, our freedom was purchased at an immeasurable cost. Our freedom was purchased at an incalculable, uh, immeasurable amount. Freedom is, is not gained, number one, 
through the payment of earthly wealth. Look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. Knowing that you were, ran- you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with. You were ransomed. The price that was paid was not perishable things such as silver, silver or gold. In our society, a ransom is almost always, almost always involves the exchange of earthly wealth. But notice that although silver and gold are valuable to us, they're perishable. They're tied to this earth. They might sparkle to us. Gold, all that, yay, gold. I like gold. (laughs) Or palladium or platinum or silver, the, the precious metals. I want that. Those things sparkle to us. We like them. To God, however, they are nothing. They don't, silver and gold don't intrigue God. They don't bring delight to him. Things like silver and gold are not the currency, folks, are not the currency that secures one's eternal freedom. And there may be some still today who think that, that if I give enough, I'll secure my eternal freedom. I'll go to heaven if I give enough uh, in, in, in the church, if I give enough to, to charities, if I, if I just give enough or do enough. Maybe we think that work Activity, religious activity, social good, that if I'm involved in those things, those things are the currency of forgiveness with God. If I do enough of those things, God will take note. And I'll be forgiven of my sin. I'll be free from sin and its punishment. Maybe maybe some of us think that today. But folks, the bottom line, silver and gold works. They're not the currency of forgiveness. Those things are earthly, perishable, and they, they, they have no inherent value to God. He doesn't look at those things and go, that's valuable. Freedom was gained through the death of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, move down to verse 19. Not, not, ransom is not coming through perishable things, silver and gold, verse 19. But instead of those things, those things that have no inherent value to God, Instead of those things, we're ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, the word blood here, often in our own conversations, blood might refer to death. That's often true in Scripture. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10 describes believers who will one day die during the Great Tribulation. And these believers say, according to Revelation 6.10, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? What does he mean? How long before you will avenge my blood, i.e. my death? My blood was spilled. I died When will you avenge that? We often use the word blood that way, to speak of death. Well, this phrase here, verse 19, the precious blood of Christ, this is referring not to the fact that somehow this blood is special blood. It's a reference to the death of Jesus Christ. Notice the word precious. Again, Peter is comparing the blood of Christ to silver and gold, to perishable things that that are valuable to us, that sparkle to us. 
And the scriptures are clear. Those things are not valuable. They're earthly, perishable. But what is truly valuable, folks, what's truly priceless, what's truly precious is the blood of Jesus. Why? Because of what it secures, because of what the death of Christ secures. It pays the price for our sin. It secures forgiveness. Now, Peter adds here, looking back at verse 19, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He is alluding to the fact that no animal could be sacrificed in the Old Testament unless it was absolutely perfect. And Jesus Christ on the cross was absolutely perfect, sinless. And so he could die as a sacrifice for me and for you. He could take the punishment for me and for you. Folks, Jesus suffered so that we would not need to. Jesus suffered on the cross and took the Father's absolute, unrestrained wrath so you wouldn't have to, so I wouldn't have to. We find this referenced in Isaiah chapter 53 numerous times. Verse 5, note this. He was pierced, and the word means to bore a hole through, speaking of a violent death. He was pierced for our transgressions, not his own but ours. He was crushed for our iniquities. So again, he's taking the punishment that I deserve and that we all deserve. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Father laid upon him all of our sin and then bore the wrath for that sin. Verse 12, he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors, for the sinners, for me and for you. Folks, there's no one on the face of this earth who can purchase their own spiritual freedom. There's no, uh, there's no sum of money large enough, no mountain of gold high enough. You can't pay it. So wretched are we that only one payment would do. The death of the sinless Son of God. That's the only payment that the Father would accept. By his death, he offered himself, Christ offered himself in exchange for you and me. He paid the ransom price for us. Now, my friend, let me just say, if you're outside of Christ today, if you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Father sees you clothed in your sin. With a clothing, he sees you in all, in all of your sin. And at that final day, if you stand, when you stand before him, if you are still clothed in your sin alone, there will be eternal judgment for that, for your lifetime of sin. And that's the terrible news. And here's the wonderful news. Christ paid the price for all of it. 
The Bible teaches that if we trust Christ, not only, uh, well, for all people, not only was my sin, the sins of the human race, placed upon Jesus and he bore our punishment, but if we trust in Christ, his righteousness clothes us from that point on. You take the old coat of, of sin off and the coat of Jesus' righteousness now wraps you. And then the Father sees you in Christ from that point on. Not that you're not sinning, you'll still sin. But when you stand before God, he will see you not in your own sin, but in the righteousness of Christ. If you haven't trusted Christ, do that today. Don't wait. The second thing we see about our freedom is that it is transformational and permanent. Really, this is, this is wonderful. Look at verse 18 again. We looked at a little bit of this last uh, few Sundays ago. Knowing that you were ransomed, notice, notice this, look at the word from. From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You were ransomed from, from sin. From, from the sins of the old life. From the word feudal means empty, worthless. You were ransomed. The price was paid. And you're free now from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. The, the, the sinful ways of living and thinking that you learned from your ancestors, your parents and grandparents. We've all inherited things. As parents, my kids learned some things from me. Hopefully some good things. Not always. What's really interesting is this little word from. I mean, the verse itself is pretty clear. Ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. The sinful, empty ways we've learned from our ancestors. Look at the word from. It's a little Greek word, ek. It doesn't mean away from. The word means out of. It speaks of the realm in which a person lives and functions. The, the picture here is of a person being transferred from one realm to another. Being transferred from the sphere of sin and rebellion. Being transferred from that sphere into the sphere of Christ and holiness. It's really a wonderful thought. Those who've repented of their sin and trusted Jesus Christ have been lifted, as it were, out of the sphere of sin and rebellion, lifted from that realm and placed forever in another realm, another sphere, the sphere of Christ and Christ-likeness and obedience. This signifies a person's permanent transformation from a life-controlled by sin to a life controlled by Christ. There are a lot of other texts that talk about this. Hold your finger here. Turn back a few books to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll let you find that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me read two other texts while you turn there. The Bible just often speaks of the believer being transferred 
from the sphere of darkness to the sphere of light. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time, at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. At one time, you were darkness, but now you've changed. Now it's different. Now that you've trusted Christ, now you are light. And then Paul challenges, walk as children of light. In other words, you were this. Now you're this. Live this way. Be what you are. Be light. That's what you are. Be light in this world. Be holy. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 is really clear. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his dear son. There was a day when we were in the dominion of darkness and sin and wickedness. We now, if we've trusted Christ, have been transferred into this, uh, the kingdom of, of his son. That's new sphere. Now, you're in 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous, he's speaking here now of people who do not know Christ, non-Christians, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? For those who aren't Christians, as the Bible describes what a Christian is, for those who are not Christians, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he defines defines what he means by non-Christians. Do not be deceived. Don't lie to yourself. Don't be lied to. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. So now he's very specific. And by the way, you may look at this list and go, I'm not in there. Good. You are. I am. Even though, just take the word adulterer. Jesus says that if you look, if a man looks at a woman and lusts after her, He's committed spiritual adultery. Any man, in, I, I could almost say, any man here who hasn't done that, raise your hand. I won't do that. There will be no takers on that. Drunkards, it simply means someone who's given themselves over to, to influences, external influences like drugs and alcohol and so forth. Revilers, swindlers. Now notice verse 11. And such were some of you. He describes what unrighteous people, how they live. He says, this is what you were at one time. Look at the list, he would say, to the church at Corinth. Look at the list. This is you. But not anymore. Because you've been transferred from one sphere to a new sphere. And notice what he says. And such were some of you. He describes their salvation now. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This idea of transfer from one sphere to another is really amazing because it communicates the fact that we're different people now. If you know Christ, you've been transformed from this realm to this. And that change is permanent. You were, but now you are. In verse 21, 
Peter mentions an additional type of permanent transformation that takes place in the life of a believer. Look at verse 21. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The idea is that before you were ransomed, before we were ransomed from our sins through faith in Christ, we were unbelievers, denying the message of the gospel, having no confidence in God and living a life without any earthly or eternal hope. That's who we were. But now, now, verse 21, we are believers in God. Now, verse 21, our faith and hope, those things rest in God. We're different. There was a day when God was nothing to us, but we've been permanently transformed. Now we have absolute confidence in God and and all that he is doing. Our hope, all of our hopes and expectations uh, are bound up in him. Now we trust God. Now we rest in God. Before we didn't, now we do. Now look at verse 21 again, and you'll see that the flow of thought is interesting. In fact, that middle phrase, if you look at the verse, that middle phrase is almost injected in a way it doesn't need to be there. Look at the beginning. Who through him are believers in God? Now skip to the end. So that your faith and hope are in God. See, the flow is perfect. Structurally, that middle section doesn't need to be there. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Why in the world is that there? It's kind of stuck in. Well, Paul is strength, uh, Peter is strengthening his argument by putting that phrase in there. Our hope and expectations are bound up in Christ, according to verse 21. We rest fully in God, his love, and mercy, and perfect plan. But folks, listen, if there is ever a time, if there is ever a time when you doubt God, if there is ever a time when, when, when you question the redemptive power of the cross, if there's ever a time when you question God's faithfulness, when you question his ability to care for you or fulfill his promises to you, when you question his plan for you, if there's ever a time when you're questioning God and what he's doing, remember what he's stuck in right here. You're believers in God, beginning of the verse. Your faith and hope are in God, the end of the verse. And if ever your hope in God and your confidence in him begins to wane, remember what he's stuck in the center. Because what he says in the center of that verse demonstrates the absolute power of God. This God in whom you have your hope and confidence, he is the one who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him, ascended him to a place of glory and honor. The resurrection and exaltation of Jesus are God's stamp of approval on all that Jesus did on the cross. And they give us yet another reason to trust and rest in God. You can trust God because He has power to raise the dead. When your confidence wanes, remember that. A third thing about our freedom, last thing. Our freedom 
was no mere afterthought. How many times in your life have you stewed over a problem or a situation? And all of a sudden, a wonderful creative solution occurs to you. You're thinking about something, a problem, and you're mulling it over, and then suddenly, oh, that will work. That will fix it. Why didn't you think of this before? Okay, no problem. I got an idea. This will work. How often have you done that? Hundreds of times, thousands of times. Sometimes your solution doesn't really work, but anyway, there have been times when you've done that. Oh, it's a, we call it an aha moment. Ah, okay, great. Now I've got to figure it out. Do you realize that God has never done that? The Bible teaches that in eternity past, before any speck of creation existed, God decreed all things. All things infinitesimal, small, tiny, and all things enormous. He decreed all things that would happen. He established a perfect, all-wise plan, and in time, in history, in a sequential way, the plan of God is all taking place. Because that's true, folks, nothing new has ever occurred to him. God's never had an aha moment. Now, Peter wants to make it clear that God's plan of redemption, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, was not an aha moment for God. The Father and Son and the Spirit weren't kind of gathered together in a boardroom looking at the sinfulness of the human race, and suddenly one of them said, Oh, hey, I got the, I got the solution to this problem. Jesus, uh, God the Son, will go and die. That, that didn't happen. That never happens with God. Because he's decreed all things. And he did in eternity past. His entire plan of salvation was foreordained from eternity past. So look now at verse 20. He, Christ, and note this, Christ as the Lamb of God. Christ in all that he was doing to ransom sinners. He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made, made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The word foreknown is a term we saw early in this chapter in verse 2. And bottom line, it speaks of God's act of prearrangement or pre-planning. The same term is used in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, according to the definite plan and prearrangement of God. And notice the phrase, before the foundation of the world. See, Peter's going far, as far back as he can go. This is as far as, as his mind can fathom. Before God created anything. So, note verse 20. He he and all that Jesus was going to do, all that God the Son was going to do in time, all that was for no was prearranged. When was it prearranged? What's the history of our redemption? It was prearranged before 
God created anything. The triune God prearranged the death of Jesus in eternity past. Folks, when you read the scriptures and you read about what Jesus did for us, it was, it was not something he just kind of came up with on the fly like we do. This goes back to before anything was created. There are three things we can kind of glean from this fact. First, we know that God's way of redemption will never change. See, it's not like, well, creation occurred and God looked at the world and saw sinners and thought to himself, wow, the three persons of the Godhead were in discussion and conversation took place. And Oh, you know, how do we fix this? We'll do this. The second person of the Godhead will die as man substitute. And the Spirit says, that's a good idea. Okay, yeah, we'll do that. It didn't happen on a whim like that, and it'll never, therefore it'll never be changed. The point is, this is a great comfort to us, because we know that God's plan of redemption, that Jesus would pay the price, that happened long before anything existed. So we can, it's a guarantee to us that it's not going to change. If you've trusted Christ, you know your sins are forgiven. If you've trusted Christ, you know you are free from sin's control. You know that you are free from the penalty of sin, which is punishment. You know that. For us, it's a comfort. And by the way, if you, if you are not a Christian this morning, in the biblical sense of that term, this is a great challenge to you. Because the bottom line is, this plan of redemption is not going to change. Jesus did all this. That's his part, and he's done it, including his death, burial, and resurrection. And now there's my part as a sinful human being. What do I need to do? I need to realize and understand what Jesus did, and I need to repent of my sin and ask him to forgive me. Then the transaction is complete. And now my sins are forgiven. I'm free from sin's control. I'm free from the penalty of sin, which is death and hell. This is what God did. And it goes back to eternity past before anything was created. This was the plan. This is what the Son did. Now there's my part as a human being. I, don't just, I can't just slide right into eternal life and forgiveness. I have a decision to make. I've made that decision by the grace of God. If you haven't, do that. My goodness, do it today. And if we can help you, we'd love to do that. The second implication that we see from verse 20 is that God decreed to allow sin into the world. Now, the fact that the, the, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God decreed that the Son would die for the sins of mankind uh, demonstrates that in the plan of God, sin was always going to happen. All that is happening around us in our world, all that's ever happened and that will happen, it's all in the plan. So I can, I can, that gives me comfort. When sin happens around me, or when I sin, or when I'm sinned against, I know it's part of the plan and there's a reason for it. And I can trust God in it and I can rest in him 
A third implication here, folks, is that God loved us so much that he planned to provide a way of forgiveness before time existed. Just think about that. Before the clock started, before the earth was orbiting the sun, before there was such a thing as time, God loved you. Before time existed, his love for you existed. If you ever doubt, does God love me? Remember that. I want to close by reading a text in 1 Corinthians 6. Here's the thing. Our freedom was purchased at an immeasurable cost. Our freedom transforms us from darkness to light. And our freedom was... In the plan from eternity past, it's not a mere afterthought. But let me ask you now, how are you going to respond to those truths? What are we going to do with those truths? How are you going to respond? Let me read 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Because this is a great description of what our response needs to be. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit within you. Whom you have from God. Note this now. You are not your own. Because you were bought with a price. What was the price? Christ's precious blood. If you're a Christian, you were bought with that currency of his death, his blood. And this is of immeasurable value. This is precious in the sight of God. Now, what will you do with that? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Note this now. The Bible says, so therefore glorify God in your body. Here's the response to these truths we've just seen. I'm not my own. I can't do with my life whatever I want. Instead of asking, what do I want to do? with my earthly time, which is not very long, I need to be asking, what does God want me to do with this life? Not how do I make myself happy, how do I please God, make Him happy? Those are the questions. If you're a Christian, those are questions you, you need to be asking. The Bible commands it based upon the fact that He purchased us. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning... There's a response demanded of you. There's only one way of forgiveness, and we've just seen what it is described in the book of 1 Peter. What are you going to do with the demand that this truth places upon you? There is only one way of redemption, one way of forgiveness, and it is faith, repentant faith in Christ. That's what's demanded of each of us. If you haven't turned to Christ, please do it today. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful text that describes our redemption, the redemption, the ransom that was paid, the blood of Christ, the death of Christ. Help us as believers to respond as we should, to know that this life is not ours, to live as we please, but to live our lives for your glory, your pleasure. And Father, if there are any here or within the broader audience who haven't trusted Christ today, 
Father, please press upon their hearts the realization that there is one way, that you established it before time began, and that that way is faith in Christ, the one who died. And please open hearts today. Please humble each one of us. Cause us to seek you out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.